Hi, welcome to Tripcast, the flagship podcast of the Lacrosse Tribune. I am Jordan Vianne, the city government reporter here with city planner Jason Gilman in our second installment of a planning-centric series. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, today we're going to talk about housing data. Housing has been a major concern in the city of Lacrosse, both you know when it comes to businesses trying to recruit talent and people coming here just to try and find a place to live. So tell me a little bit about you know where the housing market stands and what kind of concerns the city has about the housing and in our community. Well, uh, we have roughly 22,000 housing units in the city. I think about 6,000 of those are single-family detached homes, and then the rest are multifamily or, or uh, attached type housing. Um, we've seen a consistent decline in the population per household in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Census data, which is partly due to aging uh, in mm-hmm. society, uh, but also due to people having fewer children uh, sure. over time. Um, we have uh, uh, concerns about the age of our housing stock and, and how you know people's economic capacity to do rehabilitation and, and uh, um, revitalization of old homes um, because uh, uh, the urban core, the center city in our region, of course, usually has the highest concentration of older housing stock. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we have concerns about housing affordability uh, and whether or not the cost of housing in our city is a, is a good representation of the city's wage structure, you know, for mm-hmm. people of all uh, wages. And the, the city planning department, they hired a consultant, right? Just recently they had a report that came out it basically concluded the wage structure was low for the amount that people are paying on rent. Is that right? Right. And uh, yeah, that was our fair housing report. And, uh, uh, and you know, supply and demand can affect that, of course, uh, but it's also uh, af- affected by uh, construction inflation and, you know, many other factors. Mm-hmm. And when planners think of housing, we don't just think of the mortgage or the rent costs. We also think of energy costs. We think of transportation costs uh, because, uh, of course, the older housing stock is mm-hmm. probably not as uh, energy efficient. And, and then people that may be um, uh, living in, a, in an older structure that may be mm-hmm. less expensive may be paying more in energy costs. So we're, we're, we're aggressively trying to uh, deal with those things through uh, energy efficiency programs, focus on energy and, and housing rehab programs that we have in place. Uh, but it's a significant issue in terms of just the overall uh, uh, view of housing affordability. The city has a pretty significant housing replacement program. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works and what the return on investment is on that? Sure. Um, Housing replacement, uh, I think, was uh, first uh, put into place through the city's entitlement funds from HUD. So uh, because we're over 50,000 people, we get an allocation from the Housing and Urban Development Agency of, of roughly a million, 1.2 million a year. And those are the community development block grants, or is that the home yes. funds? Yeah, that, uh, it's actually uh, both of those. Okay. And, and those originated back in 1974 when President Gerald Ford was in place, mm-hmm. and then we had the uh, Housing and Community Development Act was passed by Congress. 
And that, that uh, funding is specifically meant to uh, help cities uh, of 50,000 or more people deal with poverty, blight, and, and issues like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, traditionally, we, we look for uh, homes that are, uh, that are obsolete, that are unsafe, you know, that may be candidates for condemnation. Uh, those are the ones that we, we try to acquire not just because they're less expensive, but also because they may pose a risk to the public uh, or the occupant. So they're, they're basically houses that reached the end of their lifespan. Right. Either, you know, they didn't have as good a maintenance, so they didn't last as long. Right. Or, you know, maybe they were rentals that, you know, with the owner didn't live here and didn't really care if they got all run down. Right. Or, you know, I think in some cases they're just kind of too small to be what people want now and people yeah, take you, care of them. Yeah, it may be a little bit of everything, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but we don't, I guess we, in the end, we don't try to uh, acquire and take down homes that still have a useful life uh, in them or could be repaired and, you know, uh, maintained. And for a couple of reasons, you know, we, we like our authenticity. We like, you know, heritage preservation and taking care of mm-hmm. some of our older housing stock, but we also want to remove those houses that are either dangerous or, you know, pose a safety risk or might have a stigma associated with them. We've had some that were drug houses and things like that mm-hmm. that had a negative effect on the neighborhood. And then we and then we build a new house, and we, we've been using uh, La Crosse Central High School's uh, students who are uh, fantastic. You know, they've been helping us build homes as well as Western Technical College uh, students who are very professional and build great homes. Uh, so the return on investment is uh, removal of blight, uh, removal of safety hazards, sometimes mm-hmm. removal of environmental conditions that are safety hazards like lead paint or asbestos, mm-hmm. uh, mold, you know, things like that. Sure. Um, and then uh, the new investment, of course, there's a delta or a difference between what the old house was worth and what the new house is worth. So mm-hmm. there's gain in tax base for the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is now a, a, a viable house that a family can live in and hopefully prosper in uh, rather than live in something that is dangerous or, you know, has a lot of issues. Uh, and then one of the curiosities we've seen is we used uh, story mapping, and you can actually see this on our website, uh, mm-hmm. that where every single one of our housing uh, replacement projects have been done in the city over the last 10 years. Uh, this is under our GIS mapping uh, area mm-hmm. of the website. So if you go to City Services GIS Maps and then click on the story map for replacement housing, you can see all of these. We also mapped the patterns of private investment around every uh, redeveloped house. And what we found was that on average we were seeing a 10 to 20 percent uptick in private investment activity mm-hmm. in neighborhoods where there was a replacement house versus those neighborhoods that did not have replacement housing, mm-hmm. uh, which leads us to believe that there is actually a residual effect of you know beyond what the city is spending. There's actually mm-hmm. private money that's being spent to help neighborhoods improve too. Yeah. Um, so. When you're talking about, you know, return on investment and that sort of thing, there's there's a couple different benefits. Like one of the things that the city has been really pushing for, you know, at least as long as I've been covering it, is affordable housing as in, you know, housing for that is subsidized in some way with vouchers or, you know, set a, 
setting aside units for, you know, people who are transitioning out of homelessness and things like that. Why is that something the city has been focusing on? Well, it gets back to our wage structure in the city. So um, we had a recent discussion about a uh, low-income housing tax credit development on train plant six over by on Lane Drive by the old rubber mills. And that building was proposing a stratified level of affordability all the way down to, I think, 30 or 20 percent of the median household income. And when you when you do the math on on that, you know you're talking about people that uh, people that would qualify for that lowest level of affordability would be making maybe twelve dollars an hour. Well, we have a lot of people that are making twelve dollars an hour in the city, and and we have to have housing for people mm-hmm. of all walks of life, you know, and and what uh, wage structure. So that's why it's so important is that we uh, we don't want to uh, displace people. Uh, to the extent that um, we create a, a, a crisis for people that uh, are on the uh, l- lower um, level of the income spectrum uh, because obviously having a more robust uh, um, uh, employment sector, you know, uh, that takes care of all of our economic development activities, whether it's service uses or blue-collar, white-collar, construction, uh, service, retail, you know, we... We need people of all uh, all different backgrounds, so uh, and, that, and that's where I think the whole discussion of housing uh, gets kind of provocative. Is how f- can can you keep up with low income housing tax credit programs to help mm-hmm. make sure that you have enough places for people to live given your city's wage structure, and if you're doing a lot of um, aggressive economic development and urban infill type stuff, and you're getting rid of some of the lowest uh, Mm-hmm. value housing stock are you displacing people and and uh, what I like to think of is that we are focusing on public safety and not pushing the needle too far where we're we're, we're eliminating you know we're, we're not displacing large uh, segments of housing that uh, could have a negative effect on the poor and actually push them out of the city and I think we're we're very conscientious about uh, when we do redevelopment, like Roosevelt School or the loft, uh, the, the uh, 2219 lofts, I think yeah. it's called on on uh, South Avenue, uh, that we create a strata of affordability, you know, so that people mm-hmm. of different wage structure can afford uh, those developments. What happens when you have a housing affordability crisis? Like, what does that mean for people who live here? Well, a couple different things. Uh, one is you stress your population out because if you push uh, people of lesser income out farther away from the city and farther away from employment and services, they get more stressed out economically because now they've got to spend more fuel on commuting. They've got to spend more fuel to get to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have access to transit necessarily if they're way out in an exurban area. Uh, and that can be a problem for people if you have your car break down, uh, like I have many times. And in fact, this winter, I took the bus for a month and a half because I didn't have a car, and it was fantastic because you know you have that safety net. Sure. Um, so, so it, it stresses out the public. The other thing that it does is it actually affects our e- economy because now you've got people that we need in the in the workforce that are stressed out economically and are they going to be effective employees you know is there are they more effective if they have less economic stressors and 
Um, so that that's a concern. And then environmentally, you know, if mm-hmm. you uh, you have uh, only the people that can afford uh, uh, downtown living uh, are people that are retirees that have saved up money or whatever, and or, or you've got white collar people that are you know making really high wages downtown. Uh, and everybody else is commuting. Um, of course, that ha- that has an impact on our highways and you know emissions from cars and, and those types of things. So, there, there you can really look across the spectrum of social, economic, and environmental uh, uh, problems that can occur when you don't have a good strata of affordability that represents the city's wage structure. Um, so, when you when you're talking about that, what what does it mean to have a strata of affordability that represents the city's wage structure? What does that mean? <laughs> well, it means that, um, g- generally speaking, the accepted norm is that a person shouldn't be paying more than 30% of their, their take-home pay on housing. Mm-hmm. And when you go beyond that, you start to stretch yourself thin, uh, you know, according to some of the studies that have been on, you know, economics and, and household budgets. Uh, so that's the number, you know, planners and, the, and uh, people that are uh, in the housing arena mm-hmm. uh, tend to shoot for. And if, if we have, uh, you know, if we have a, a breakdown of all of our mm-hmm. uh, uh, employment in the city and we know that a certain percentage of people are making, you know, 30% of the median household mm-hmm. income, a certain percent are, are making 50% of the uh and that's mm-hmm. the county median income, so I'm yeah. just talking about the percentage within the city. Yeah. We can get a pretty good handle on what are the housing needs in the community, and usually that is represented in the city's comprehensive plan. We'll do, you know, uh, almost reverse engineering on it, you know, where mm-hmm. we, we know we need a certain amount of housing units given the economic strata of, of what people are making in the community, and we try to, we try to shoot for those numbers so that, um, you know, people have access to choices. Housing. What does that look like in our area right now? Like, how many people in La Crosse are under that thirty yeah. percent of their household income? Well, Carl Green at UW Extension just did a, a study uh, to extract that information, and what he mm-hmm. found was that uh, in La Crosse and I think West Salem and uh, uh, the, the more uh, the areas around La Crosse, people generally uh, just under 15% of our population are paying over 30% of their uh, income on housing costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the town of Madary, the city of Onalaska, the town of Onalaska, they had uh, between 15 and 25% of their population paying over 30% of the housing on housing costs. So um, that's an interesting pattern uh, mm-hmm. because it shows us that uh, either one or two things are happening. Uh, either we're seeing, you know, some displacement of poor out of urban areas into housing markets that have been traditionally much more expensive, or we're seeing just high-priced housing in, the, in those areas that, you know, from new construction. And, and we've had a lot of construction inflation, but we've also, over the last 30 years, built really big homes in, in some of the ex-urban areas, like mm-hmm. the town of Madeira or the city of Onalaska. Like, could it be like a combination of both? There are some people who, you know, used to live in the city of La Crosse. All of a sudden, there's more new construction here, so they have to look elsewhere. And then there's also new construction in, you know, say, Madari or on Alaska, where it's bigger houses, too. Yeah, 
I, I think it probably is a little bit of both. I think when people make choices about where they live, um, they they may look farther out from the city where, you know, there may be uh, less expensive homes like in a rural area, um, and they, they may look at uh, lesser taxes in a rural area, for instance, uh, because they don't have as many services. But they're also offsetting those gains with fuel costs if they're commuting in. And mm -hmm. UW Extension did a study on that too and found that a lot of people that made that choice because of tax differentials actually wiped out any gain because of the commuting costs, because mm -hmm. of fuel, you know, and just dri driving and the cost of driving. Yeah, cars are expensive and keeping them running is not uh, cheap even if you don't have a car payment. So one of the major tools that the city uses to address housing is the Community Development Block Grant Program. It's uh, something that does a ton of stuff in the city of La Crosse. Why is it so flexible and why is it important that the federal government keeps funding this program? Because I know it's been on the shopping block for a couple of years now and that is something that you know, uh, Ron Kind and Tammy Baldwin have both been in lacrosse in the last year to say, don't cut it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a very, very good question. And um, again, it goes back to 1974 and, the, and, and uh, uh, Congress recognizing that uh, urban areas, just by their very nature, see decay. And as decay occurs, it becomes almost unmanageable for the private sector to handle it alone because you're dealing with uh, urban infill, which is different than building on greenfield sites like a cornfield outside of an exurban area uh, where you don't have many inhibitors. In an urban area, you've got uh, old utilities. You might have to replace a sanitary sewer lateral, for instance. You've got an old house that needs to be torn down, so there are costs related to that. There may be environmental remediation that needs to be done, like asbestos mm -hmm. abatement or lead paint disposal. Or and like in the case of Riverside North, they, it was an oil site that needed significant cleaning up. Yeah, yeah. But that's not a CDBG project, but it's... Right, um, but I think, I think it's Congress's recognition, you know, back in the 70s that uh, if they let the in interior of cities decay mm -hmm. from the natural, you know, evolution mm -hmm. of uh, housing and obsolescence and mm -hmm. just uh, maintenance and things like that, that we would have other issues that would occur. And those issues can be, you know, blight and crime and other things that can occur as the environment uh, deteriorates. So uh, th th those programs actually help cities uh, um, keep areas uh, livable and more safe and uh, perhaps, um, you know, uh, mitigate the potential consequences of uh, careless decay. All right. Well, it's a very complicated problem that uh, the city and community as a whole has been working together to address. I think that wraps up our second installment of our you know, closer look at planning. Thank you guys for listening, and I hope you will join us again for our third installment.